Good morning. Well, our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 7, and we'll begin reading in verse 11 in a minute or two. I have a confession to make to you this morning. It's this. There are times in life when things happen that don't make a lot of sense to me. How many of you find that to be true? Okay, so I'm not alone. That's good. I often wonder about things like sickness and sorrow and um, frustrations and delays and persecutions and things like that. And when trouble comes my way, I am sometimes confused by it. I'm not alone. I saw the hands go up. Job was like that. Joseph was like that. Mary and Martha were like that. So we're, we're not alone in that. But there's been a verse that has been a real comfort to me over the years, and it has helped at times to straighten out my thinking, because my thinking needs to be straightened out when I'm facing things like that. And uh, it's helped me to appreciate that um, while God is at work on the small details of my life, he's also at work on a much grander scale uh, in the lives of every human being and world events. All to, to move towards one end, and that is to accomplish his purposes. And so the, the scripture says, this is the verse that is a comfort to me, and like I said, it helps straighten my thinking out when I need a good uh, slap across the face from time to time. <laughs> and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. So even when you have circumstances that seem confusing and out of touch with reality at times, God is at work. And he's at work in your life, causing all things to work together for good. Remember that. It's, it's important. Preachers in the, behind this pulpit have said from time to time that during the week of their preparation, things happen. <clears throat> and sometimes things happen that cause great frustration to them or a trial that they go through as they prepare. And I think oftentimes it's because the Lord is working on the preacher that week in a particular way. And uh, this week was no exception. A couple of years ago, I purchased a a laptop computer from a company that will remain nameless. (laughs) And uh, it's been a a decent computer, but what I didn't realize at the time I purchased it is that they had formatted the hard drive incorrectly. And they had, I I don't want to get too technical because I don't understand it either, but they can put partitions in a, on a hard drive, and they had partitioned the hard drive incorrectly. So that I was going along for a year and a half with no problems whatsoever, and then all of a sudden, programs started crashing, and I couldn't save any data to my computer anymore, and all kinds of weird things were happening. And part of it was because the partition was full, and I couldn't keep saving to it. It wasn't going to take anything more on it. And so I called the company and I said, look, I've got a problem with my computer. Can you help me to get this thing fixed? And so they said, sure. And so we, of course, this happened to be on the week that I'm preparing for a message and I don't really need a problem with my computer. But they said, what we have to do, we'll look at it. So they can 
connect to my computer through the Internet, and with me not touching a thing, they can go onto it and start moving files around and deleting this and adding that and changing this and all kinds of stuff. And they're over in India, and I'm here in, you know, Castro Valley, and they're just doing this. I'm like, this is pretty cool, you know? And so they said, look, Mr. Robertson, there's nothing we can do for you. The only thing we can do is, uh, I mean, to fix it. We have, we have to do is take everything off the computer, erase the entire hard drive, and start over again. I said, oh, that's going to take hours and hours of time to do that. So we transferred all of the files that were important to me onto a hard drive, external hard drive, and they erased everything on my computer. Reformatted the whole hard drive. We put everything back on the computer, and I turned it on. And I'm starting to type my sermon. And I'm typing, and nothing is happening. Two seconds go by, and then all of a sudden the words appear. <laughs> I go, wow. I didn't realize I had become that fast in typing. <laughs> Tried it again. Two seconds go by, the rest of the line comes on. I go, this is not right. <laughs> so in the middle of this, I get a call from India. Mr. Robertson, just want to see how your computer's working. Not too well. <laughs> well, we can try to fix it for you. And so they, yesterday, they were working on my computer, and uh, as they were deleting files and changing this and changing that, there are delays, there are times that we're just watching the computer do its thing. And uh, so I started talking to the guy. Now, this was a real frustration to me. I will admit that. But as I was talking to the guy, um, I began to ask him some questions. I said, what's your name? He says, Muhammad. I said, Muhammad, where do you live? He says, Bangalore. His English was impeccable. I mean, it was perfect. And I said to him, what other languages do you speak besides English? He says, well, he says, I read and speak Arabic. I read and speak Urdu. I read and speak Hindi. I read five languages, maybe six. I forget. I lost count. I said, you know these fluently? He says, oh, yes, I do. He says, I want to learn Spanish next. <laughs> I can hardly say Urdu. Okay? My tongue doesn't quite do that that it's supposed to do. So as we sat there, he said, okay, I think I fixed it. He said, I'm going to load up a, a page for you. It's uh, a Word document, a blank Word document. I want you to type something now. I said, oh, this is great. All this frustration wasn't really for me at all. And I began to think of this verse about God causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I probably will never go to India. And if I went to Bangalore, I asked him, how many millions of people are in Bangalore? He says, I don't have any idea. But he says, let me just give you an example. He says, I live, um, oh, I forget how many blocks he said away from from work, but it wasn't many blocks. He says, it takes me half an hour if I drive. I said, so you don't drive? He says, no, I don't drive. <clears throat> he says, there are millions of people here. What are the chances of a guy who lives in Castro Valley of ever meeting Muhammad of Bangalore in person and being able to share the gospel with him? Slim to none. You know, slim to none. So here I am on the phone with Muhammad, who is a Muslim, and he, and he told me that. And he's asking me with a blank page in front of him, very intelligent man, to write something. 
Okay. So I started. Four. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it reminded me of what we've been talking about, that I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, as though God were beseeching through me to be reconciled to him. And here I had an opportunity with a man that I'm going to have to talk to again on the phone (laughs) about the gospel. Pray for Muhammad. Muhammad needs to know that his sins can be forgiven, that God loves him, and that his sins can be forgiven, and that he can be on his way to heaven as well. This message this morning is recorded. This message is heard by people in China, by people in Mexico, by people in Hawaii. And I don't know where else people pick it up, but they do pick it up, and I've heard about that. And so I say to those people this morning, when you think about Muhammad right now, just stop and pray and ask the Lord to save his soul. Why don't we do the same this morning? Lord, we want to pray for Muhammad and so many others like him, Muslims who are behind the Islamic curtain, who have been blinded to the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you might open the doors for them to hear the good news of salvation, how you sent your son to the cross to die for our sins and their sins, and how they need to know you as their, as their Savior and Lord. We pray for Muhammad especially, Lord, that you would save his soul. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, I can't explain every frustration in life. I can't explain every tragedy in life. I can't explain everything that you're going through in your life today. But this one thing I know, that God loves you. And he will never give you more than you can bear. And we know from that scripture that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. Well, it brings us to our story this morning in Luke chapter 7 um, and begin reading in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Then the Lord saw her and had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So we're going to take this passage phrase by phrase. Now it happened the day after is how it starts. The day after what? Well, last week Rick spoke about the centurion whose servant was sick and ready to die. The man, the centurion called for Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And Jesus healed him. 
And as we read the story, we saw that the event took place in a town called Capernaum. And Rick pointed that out to us on his make-believe map, if you remember. He held his hand up here, and here is the Sea of Galilee. And in the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee is the town of Capernaum. And so, uh, now it's been a week since that sermon. It was last Sunday. But in our setting here, only a day went by, okay? Because it says, um, now it happened the day after that he went into the city of Nain. The day after the centurion's servant was healed, Jesus went into the city of Nain. Now, the city of Nain is 30 miles from Capernaum. Jesus didn't get into his Toyota and drive down to the city of Nain. He walked 30 miles. How far is 30 miles? How long would it take you to walk? Well, let me explain it this way. If you started at my house and I walked to Eric's house and then I walked from Eric's house to the Wilson's home, and then from the Wilson's home to the Bellis home, and from the Bellis home to the Clapper's home, and then I left the Clapper's home and I went to Hesperian Boulevard, and I walked all the way down Hesperian Boulevard until it became Union City Boulevard, and I visited the home of the Epps, and then I came to the chapel, I still wouldn't be finished. And if I left the chapel and I walked over to Renee's house, and then after I left Renee's house, I went to Ron and Isla's house, then I would be at the end of my 30 miles. It's a long way. To put it another way, if I started in San Francisco and I walked across the Bay Bridge and all the way through Oakland and all the way through San Leandro and all the way through Hayward and all the way through Union City to the chapel, that's the same distance Okay, in one day, walking. I did a Google map. I don't know if you know that Google has maps that will show you how to drive to different distances. They also have now a, a feature where you can type in how to walk to a certain place, and they give you a route for walking, <clears throat> and they measure it measured out for you, so that's what I used. Google said to me, not, not literally, I mean, it was on the paper. <laughs> they said to me that it would take me nine hours to walk that distance. Now, Google doesn't know what shape I'm in. <laughs> I think it would have taken me three days to walk that distance. Some of you have taken the trip to uh, Half Dome, and you've walked from the valley floor to Half Dome and back. That's 17 miles. Okay. He walked 30 miles. I'm exhausted at the end of that 17 miles. I don't know about you, but I am. We, uh, Christine and I prepared for my last hike to Half Dome for months, walking through the hills of Hayward up and down for months, five miles a day. And I was still exhausted after that 17-mile hike. Jesus walked 30 miles to the city of Nain. Why? Some of you walk uh, around Lake Chabot. I think it's, what, nine or ten miles? Nine and a half miles? So call it ten. <laughs> Give yourself the extra half. <laughs> yeah. You do it once. And the reason you do it is because you want to keep in shape, keep fit, right? It's not the reason Jesus walked 30 miles. Some of you um, have tried out for a marathon or have thought you were going to run in a marathon 26 miles plus a few hundred yards He wasn't preparing for a marathon here either. Why did Jesus walk that far? Well, there was a woman with a broken heart who needed him. 
And he walked 30 miles to mend a broken heart. You know, there's so much sorrow and there's so much pain and there is so much grief in this world. There's so many hurting people. And we grieve over broken relationships, sickness, disease. Some have an aching loneliness in their hearts. And sin has left a terrible scar in this world. It really has. The story shows us something about the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 9.15, it says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. The Lord had compassion for this city, for this woman of name, or in name. You know, it was during the time that the Lord was in Capernaum that uh, the servant of the centurion was sick and dying. And while he lay sick and near death, there was a young man in the city of Nain who was also sick and dying. Jesus healed the man's servant in Capernaum, but this young man in Nain died. And while the centurion and his friends rejoiced at the healing of the servant in Capernaum, a mother in Nain clung to the body of her lifeless son in Nain, and she wept. Does the Lord care? Does the Lord care about our sorrow? Does the Lord care about our suffering? Well, of course, the rest of the story proves that he does. But does he care for all that you are going through in your life? Your pain, your sorrow. Well, the rest of the story tells us that he does. It's for you too, not just for her, but for you too. For the scripture says in Psalm 111 verse 4, He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And so the Lord walked over 30 miles to heal a broken heart. He did that for this woman. Don't you think he would do that for you too? Well, he already has. He's already come more than 30 miles for you. The Lord Jesus Christ left heaven's glories. And he came to this earth and he walked the dusty trail to Calvary. And there on Calvary, he died on the cross for your sins and mine. Yeah, Jesus cares. He cares. He took all of your sin He's called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He paid your sin's debt in full at the cross. The Bible says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? What are your problems today? What problems do you really have? He has already solved our greatest problem, that is our sin debt. And he paid for that in full at the cross. Whatever your problem is, believer, I'll tell you right now, it's nothing in comparison to that problem that you had. And he already took care of our worst problem, our most difficult problem. And he set you free from your sins. He saved your soul. By faith, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he saves you from your sin, from the sin debt, and he uh, delivers you uh, into the family of God. He answered you and he saved your soul. By faith you believe him and he saves your soul. But by faith 
Believe in him to deliver you from all of your troubles too. And he will, because the scripture says he will. It says this in Psalm 34. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Back in verse 11, And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. So we have two large crowds here. First, we have the large crowd that was attending Jesus or coming with Jesus, his disciples, and a large crowd of people who wanted to be healed or helped in some way. And then you have the crowd coming out of the city. It's a funeral procession. And in those days, they didn't have a burial and then a memorial service like we do today. Instead, they just carried the body on a plank, basically. It was just like a a wooden platform. And there would be friends and family who would see this, and they would come alongside, and they would mourn and cry. And there were even paid mourners who would come along, and they would mourn over the death of the, the person until they got to the graveside where they would bury the person. And so these two crowds come together and uh, merge together. But as the crowds came together, it's interesting to me that the Lord did not lose sight of her. The Lord saw her even in the midst of the crowd. He did not overlook her needs. Sometimes I think we think that we're not very important to God. After all, God has so much to do. And what, who am I in comparison to so many? We're just one person in the midst of the crowd. Why should Jesus care for me? And as Christians, we sometimes forget that he said, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. I love that verse. If you ever question, does he care? Think about the wounds in his hands. Think about the wounds in his feet. Think about the sword that was thrusted into his side. Does he care? Oh, (laughs) believers, he cares. He cares. When we look at the circumstances that this widow was facing, they seem to contradict the promises in God's word. And even as we read the passage uh, before us, it seems to underscore the hopelessness of the situation. It was almost like a, each phrase here is almost like a dagger in her heart. Read it again. It says this, Behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Each line of that scripture makes the tragedy worse. You know, death is a, it's a terrible enemy, really. Death has no respect for age. It has no respect for personal status, for wealth, or for degree. And it reaches its cold, icy hands into every family and every home. From the moment you were born until today, you've actually been counting the days towards your funeral. On the day of your birth, 
you had the most days available to you. And every day that has gone by, you have been burning them up. Those days, you've been burning them up at a pace of 24 hours a day. We all have an appointment with death. And tonight at 12 midnight, you'll have used up one more day. But perhaps today is the day of your appointment. God has a book. It's interesting. And he has allotted to you at the day, in fact, before you were born, he allotted to you a certain number of days. I don't know how many days those are, but he does. The Bible says, and in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so we have an appointment with death. And after death, the Bible says judgment. We face the judgment of God. And in Hebrews, it says this, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The Bible teaches us that our life is transient. It uses uh, phrases like this. He says, for my days are consumed like smoke. Burns up, just gone. My life is a breath. My life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. My days are swifter than a runner. I, we were talking last night, and uh, someone, we, we said something about how days have just gone by in life so fast. And they seem to pick up the pace as you get older. I remember my grandparents saying, oh, you know, the days go by so fast. You know? I go, you know. As a kid, they didn't seem to go by so fast. But uh, every year that goes by, I'll tell you, they just whizzing by at this point. You blink and another year's gone by. And soon you will open the newspaper and you will find my obituary there. He lived. He was born. He lived. He died. The time for my appointment with death will come, and your time is coming too. What is death? Death is separation. It always has to do with separation. You see me, and what you see is a body. And the way you communicate with me, the real me, is through my body, basically. You, you talk, I listen. I talk, you listen, I hope. And uh, we communicate back and forth that way. But the real me is actually cocooned inside this body. And when I die, you'll still see my body. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go look at it, but I mean, my body will still be there, but I won't be there. There's a separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. This body is likened to a tent. And one day this tent will be taken down and the real me will no longer be here. But the real me still exists. The real me carries on, and the next thing after death is judgment. And we will all stand before the judgment of God. And if you're not a believer this morning, I already know the outcome, and I can tell you the outcome. And it's really, uh, on one hand, scary, and on the other hand, wonderful. And here's what it is. Here's the outcome. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no second chance after death. You're not going to come there and say, well, Lord, look at all the good things I do. Look at my list. Can I get to heaven? No. Heaven is decided in life, not in death. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you die, the question isn't, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? That question is settled in life. Unbelievers will face hell 
That's it. The question is, you have an opportunity today to not go to hell, to not face the lake of fire, to not face the second death. What is the second death? The second death is this. Again, it's a separation. And it's where I, if I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, am separated from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. That's what the Bible calls the second death. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your future. That is what you're facing when you die. That's the horrible news. That's the awful news. That's the sad news. But the good news is that you don't have to go there. And God has provided a way for you to know Him, to be spared from eternity in the like of fire, and to enjoy eternity in the presence of God, where there are no tears, no sorrow, no weeping, no crying, none of this that we have faced on earth. The choice is yours, though. God has, in a marvelous way, opened the way to heaven for you. And he leaves the decision to you to make. Choose now. Choose him, and you will be saved. It's wonderful, wonderful news. If you were that dead man being carried out in that stretcher to the grave today, where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? God is just. A dead man being carried out, the only son of his mother. You know, death is never easy. As any parent who has lost a child will tell you, parents shouldn't have to bury their children. It just seems so backwards. But here she was, a a dear mother, stricken with grief. She had watched as her son, her only son, had died, had breathed his last and was gone. And she was already no stranger to death. She had had a husband. It says here she was a widow. Some years ago, I made a special trip to uh, Vancouver Island where my grandparents lived. And I was visiting my grandmother about a year after my grandfather's death. And I I went there to see how she was doing and and see if we could help her in any way. And my grandmother, if you were to look sideways at her glasses, she wore the thickest glasses you can imagine. And uh, she was having trouble seeing. So I said, well, let's go shopping. And I said, I'll buy you one of those magnifying um, glass poles or whatever they're called. I don't know what they're called. But you stick them on letters and everything is magnified. And so I said, then you can read your Bible again and, and uh, help you out there. So after we picked up one of those for her, we went shopping. I mean, we were shopping. We went to a restaurant to eat. And um, we were just having a normal conversation over lunch. And all of a sudden, she looked kind of far away, and her eyes bubbled. <laughs> and I said, what's the matter, Grandma? And she says, oh, I miss him so much. It had been a year since his death, but the sorrow was still a raw wound in her, in her heart. She was a believer. My grandfather was a believer. They knew that, she knew that he was in heaven. She knew that when she died, she would go to meet him too. But death brings sorrow. There's no question about it. We don't sorrow as others who have no hope, but we still sorrow. And the widow of Nain was no stranger to death. How long she had been a widow, we don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But there's one thing I know about her. 
She had a special place in God's heart. And how do I know that? Do you know that God has a special place in his heart for widows? The Bible says that. The Mosaic Law made a special provision for four groups. It says this. Um, it was the Levites who were serving the Lord, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widows. In fact, a tithe was to be set aside for those four groups of people. In uh, Deuteronomy 14:29. it says this. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates that they may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. God says that he is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. Care for widows is commanded in the Old Testament scriptures. And it is underscored in the New Testament as well. The early church recognized a special group of men in the early church to meet this one need, widows. There was an issue of how they were being cared for. And so deacons were established in the early church and continue this day, and this was their primary function. When we care for the fatherless, when we care for widows, for the poor and for needy and for strangers, we show more than just compassion for those who are defenseless. We actually show the character of God in our lives. If we are ambassadors who truly represent the Lord Jesus Christ, let us show his compassion for those who are in need. For the scripture says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, a good portion of a whole chapter in the scripture in the New Testament for the church is devoted to this subject. In 1 Timothy 5, let's take a look at it for a minute. 1 Timothy 5, and we'll read uh, beginning in verse 3. First Timothy 5, 3, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty strong. So the primary responsibility for widows are family members, children, and that includes everybody here because you're a child of a mother, if she's still living, your first responsibility is to your own family members. If your mother is widowed, care for her, provide for her, show her the love of Christ by taking care of her. Show piety at home, it says, and repay your parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. 
Next, in verse 9, it says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. That means in the church itself, let, um, th- there are, are limits. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to be married, to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. The idea there is that they're looking outside the realm of Christian marriage there. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan." If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So let's take a quick look at that. Those who are widows are to be cared for, first and foremost, by their own family members, their children, their immediate family members. To deny this to your own mother okay, is to deny the faith and to be worse than an infidel. So that is your primary responsibility, my primary responsibility for my, uh, my own family members. If others, other believers outside the immediate family want to care for widows because they have the means to do so, then let them do so. Go ahead and do it. Finally, it's the responsibility of the church to care for the widows in our midst. Now, this church here Calvary Bible Chapel has not seen much death. It's quite remarkable in the years that we've been here. Um, but a few of us are, are aging. And uh, I always speak for myself. This portion may come, become more and more appropriate in our midst here in future years at Calvary. And our compassion for the widows should show The poor widow of Nain had no husband. And her son, who would be the next one responsible for her, both in Old Testament law as well as in New Testament rulings, if you will, um, her only son was now dead. But the Lord is the defender of widows. And he steps into the scene of sorrow and wipes away every tear. It says, verse 13, When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Now, I don't know if you notice the intimacy uh, in this passage. Let me read it again, this portion of it. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he touched the open coffin. You know, like I said, it was like a stretcher of wood that they were carrying out to the grave. To touch a coffin or a dead person in those days was to become ceremonially unclean. Jesus did not become ceremonially unclean. He raised the dead. Jesus made the dead man live. He made the unclean clean. 
He made the dead live again. The touch did not defile the Lord. It made the man whole. The crowd had just witnessed a resurrection. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever witnessed one before, have you? (laughs) But they did. And the Lord Jesus presented the young man to his mother. It's a beautiful, touching picture of what he did there. You know, when we say young man here, oftentimes, I think even in pictures in Sunday school now, this is a little kid. Okay, it's not a little kid here. There's a different word for man than for little kid in uh, the scripture. And this was not a child. This was an adult ma- male. And so the child or the, the man that, he's ta- that, that is mentioned here is someone who is under the age of 40, a young man. I was uh, saying to somebody last night, I said, I guess that puts me out of the young picture now if it's 40 and under. Do you think the Lord cares about broken hearts? (laughs) I should say so. The scripture clearly shows his heart of compassion here, and the answer to this woman's needs was met. Verse 16, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen uh, among us. I'm sure that they thought back to the Old Testament of days of Elijah and days of Elisha when those prophets raised the dead. And here the Lord Jesus is raising the dead. And God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Let me just say this. Our time is is pretty much up. Whatever circumstances you are going through in life today, remember who it is who is in control. At the beginning of the day, the widow of Nain was weeping, but God visited his people. And by the end of the story, she and all the others around her glorified God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. You know, when I see the Lord Jesus Christ as he deals so tenderly with people, and I know that he deals so tenderly with you, I have to say with the songwriter, and we'll sing the song, how can I help but love him when he loved me so? Let's pray. Lord, as we think of the circumstances of life, we realize that everything that we face in life has to be first filtered through your loving hands. We thank you, Lord, that even when it seems like there are tragedies, difficulties, sorrow and grief, we know, Lord, that you are in total control and that you can take these circumstances in our life and the weeping and the tears that accompany them and you can cause all things to work together for good. Lord, I don't understand how you do it, but I thank you that you have such compassion and love for us that you do do it. And Lord, I thank you for this passage and, and how you went so far, what it seemed like, so far out of your way to meet the needs and the, the grief of one woman. Lord, I know that when I think of what you've done for us, how you left heaven's glory and you came to this earth and you went to Calvary's cross for me and for us. Lord, your love is not in question at all. We thank you that you did not spare your own son, Father,
that you gave him up for us all. We thank you that with him you will freely give us all things. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just say again how much we love him. Lord, as we sing this song, we just pray that it would be the, the song of our heart, that we love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our being. Lord, I pray for any today who still don't know you that have not experienced that love in a real way. I just pray, Lord, that today might be the day when they bow the knee and they trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen.